Proctor, some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Euroclosure is coming up in Bratislava, Slovakia from October 25th and 26th. Euroclosure offers a great mix of experienced closures and new adopters, and everyone can find something to suit their needs. Visit euroclosure.org to find out more, register, or to sign up for their mailing list. The 2016 edition of Scala IO is coming up. This year's edition will take place in Lyon, France on the 27th and 28th of October. Scala IO is a nonprofit, community driven conference with a strong sharing spirit. With five different tracks, any functional geek will find something interesting, from beginner to advanced user. General functional programming subjects and other languages will be present as well. Visit Scala.io for more information and to register. Codemesh is coming up again, taking place the 3rd and 4th of November, with tutorials on the 2nd of November. The program is up and a new keynote has been announced. Connor McBride talking space monads. Connor joins the other keynotes, Joe Armstrong interviewing Alan Kay, and Joe Armstrong and Sam Aaron performing distributed jamming session with Sonic Pi and Erlang. Other speakers include Sophie Wilson, who designed the instruction set of the ARM processor, which became the de facto model used in the 21st century smartphones, PureScript creator Phil Freeman, Professor Dan Friedman of the Little Schemer and Essentials of Programming Languages fame, and many more. Visit CodeMesh.io to register and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKRY10. Scala Wave is coming up on the 25th and 26th of November in Gdansk, Poland. With keynote speaker Roland Kuhn, one day of workshops, and three presentation packages, Scala Wave is created to build a network of Scala enthusiasts and experts in the area of the Baltic Sea region and beyond. Visit www.scalawave.io to find out more and to sign up for their newsletter for updates. Destination Code, a new on-conf starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The on-conf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summer Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. The 2016 Closure Cons will be taking place in Austin, Texas on December 1st through the 3rd. Closure Cons is the original conference for Closure and its community. Founded in 2010, the conference is the premier place for developers from all around the world to gather and learn about what is happening with the language, in the community, and with organizations using Closure. Visit 2016closure collegeorg for more information and to register. Lambda Days will be taking place again on the 9th and 10th of February 2017. Lambda Days is a one-of-a-kind experience in the functional world. The never-failing explosion of enthusiasm and talent is what gets them motivated to explore the amazing community and all of its potential. To Lambda Days, Scala, Erlang, Haskell, Elixir, F-Sharp, Lisps, Clojure, and many other emerging technologies are more than just languages. They are new perspectives on how to understand and tackle challenges of everyday work. The call for talks is open until January 1st, 2017, and make sure to keep an eye out on their site for when registration opens. Visit www.lambdadays.org to submit your talk and keep updated as information becomes available. And if you would like a discount code, email contact at functionalgeekery.com or DM at functionalgeekery on Twitter for a code to get 15% off ticket price. Closure D has been announced and will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on February 25th of 2017. The call for talks is open through October 31st and early bird tickets are also available. And Closure D hopes to get a diverse range of speakers, so they, and I, would like to encourage you to submit a proposal if you are an underrepresented member of the community. For more information, to submit your proposal and your signature, visit www.closured.de. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. 
If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Professor Simon Thompson. Simon, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Simon Thompson. I'm at the University of Kent in the UK, and I've been here since 1983. So my first job was in the University of Lancaster in the maths department, and that was for one year, 1982-83. And during that time, I'd been getting myself into computing. I did a maths degree in Cambridge, and then I did a doctorate in Oxford in mathematical logic, in recursion theory. So I was getting into computing, coming at it from the abstract, from the mathematical end. And I'd done my thesis, and it had been exciting stuff about you know higher-order computation in sort of intuitionistic context, but realized that what I was doing was difficult math, but it wasn't of huge interest to more than a dozen people, I suspect. And I began to see that there were these interesting ideas going on in computing, particularly around functional programming. So similar ideas, but getting lots more interest and also having a potential for impacting what people did in the real world, changing the way they wrote programs, built systems and so on. So during that year, I, as I say, I got interested in functional programming. And I think one of the things that really got me interested was a book by John Darlington, Peter Henderson and David Turner, who were the three profs in that area. Peter Henderson had been in Oxford, John Darlington was at Imperial, and David Turner had been at St Andrews and then had moved to Kent. And they together were getting a real bandwagon rolling around new sorts of functional programming. There'd been Lisp around, obviously, since the early 60s. Darlington, Henderson and Turner, there were new languages like Sassel, St Andrews' symbolic language that David had written. There was Alice and Hope coming out of Edinburgh. So there are a whole lot of languages around for doing this new sort of more mathematical, elegant, high-level computation. And a job came up at Kent. It was a time when universities were a bit in the doldrums, but there were a few new blood lecturers trying to bring new people into universities. I applied for one of those and came to work with David Turner. And the rest, as they say, is history. So that's what got me here. So you get into functional programming from the math side, and you mentioned a couple of these languages and the Lisp stuff. Is that just what attracted you? Because Miranda was somewhere around that time, if I understand my history right. Was it the Lisp side or just the book that attracted you and put together that computing was a fit with the kind of math stuff you were coming from? I think it was that the ideas was an air, it was a hot area in the 1980s. It was a time when people were interested in building new languages, but they were doing it for a purpose because there was a feeling at the time that sequential languages, traditional computer architectures were grinding to a halt. And what were needed, was a lot of thought at the time about massively parallel machines. And if there was to be effective programming of those machines, then we needed new languages for doing it. Languages that were more abstract. So you could see, for example, if you have a functional language and you have a whole lot of sub-expressions, then you can think of evaluating distinct sub-expressions in parallel. And so that was one of the reasons there was a lot of interest in functional programming. 
And I think people, it was a time when people did just implement their own languages. Perhaps there was that tradition. So Sassel came from St. Andrews, and then there was a language called KRC, Kent Recursive Calculator, that David Turner came up with. But then in 1986, he produced Miranda, which was, it was strongly typed in a way that earlier languages hadn't been. So it was, that was a big break from Lisp. It was making the language more secure. You could write a type specification and then implement your function. It used a style that was a, a long way away from Lisp. It got rid of all the brackets. It used a more mathematical layout. It had proper data type definitions. So it synthesized things from a number of the other languages that people were talking about at the time. And so for a few years became the sort of standard for this new kind of functional programming. It was typed, mathematical, it had proper data types. And also interesting for Miranda, it was lazy. So you had demand-driven evaluation, and that fitted well with some ideas in computer architecture. There was a project that was going on at Kent at the time of looking at how you might turn instruction sets for a virtual machine into microcode on a particular implementation. And the implementation ideas are all these hot ideas coming in of combinators. So people taking ideas from the Lambda calculus, it's a very mathematical theory about functions, and using those, this is David Turner's work, using ideas of, of turning functions into combinators as an efficient implementation mechanism. So there was things going on at the implementation level, things going on at linking functional languages with computer architectures. In fact, the standard conference at the in the early 80s was a conference called Functional Programming and Computer Architecture. The two were linked by a conference. And then the, the conference that succeeded that or went alongside with LISP and Functional Programming, I guess acknowledging that these new paradigms were quite different from the, the LISP paradigm that came out of AI and so on. So new ideas of implementation, new architectures, new ways of programming, all those things were new and very exciting and all coming together. So that was what got me excited. I guess a final thing coming in was that you could see if you were going to write programs in a language like Miranda or successor languages, that it was going to be a lot easier to prove things correct. So I think what people were hoping in the mid-80s, say, was that we were going to have revolutionary new computer architectures that only functional languages would work with. There were going to be people writing proofs, regularly writing proofs of the correctness of their programs, and they would be doing that first with functional languages. In fact, things didn't turn out like that, and often predictions don't turn out as you expect. So instead of us having to abandon sequential computation, what happened was that sequential computers just got faster and faster, until, of course, Moore's Law ended about five years ago. So it's interesting. I mean, I'd, I'd like to come back to that a bit later on, you know, when we start talking about how functional programming languages are seen now. But thinking back to the 80s, I think people thought very seriously, we're going to have to work with these new architectures. We need these new languages. And I think people also thought that proof was going to be a lot more straightforward than it turned out to be. But of course, things are, there have been huge developments in that area of machine-assisted proof as well. But I remember having a conversation with David Turner, and this would have been around the mid-80s, and him saying, I'm sure by 2000, mathematicians will just use automated proof as a matter of course. So I think people did have these very, they saw computers affecting mathematical practice and so on, in a way that 
they have affected it, but much more slowly and, and much less than one, one might have thought. But I guess, you know, the business of futurology is always a bit off. So who would have predicted Google, the Google search algorithm, for example? You know, all these things, the things that happen are extraordinary. But it's interesting, again, to see the predictions there were for functional languages have come true perhaps in a different form, but you know, 25 years down the line. So I came into Kent when these ideas were taking off. And we taught our students regularly right from then up to about 2010, 2011. We're teaching our students lazy functional programming, sometimes midway through the course, sometimes earlier, with varying degrees of success. But, you know, that's that's true programming in general. Not all, all students take to programming. So it came into education and a number of research projects were built around that area. So I think the 80s were a real heyday. That was a time when lots of work was going on, lots of excitement. It was a cool area to research. And lots of people came in, lots of people wanted a vehicle for doing research. So instead, they moved away, I guess, people moved away from everybody having their own language to thinking, well, perhaps what we'd like is a language on which to base research. So a standard language everybody might teach, people might base for research. And people thought Miranda might be that language, but for a variety of reasons, that didn't work out. So around the late 80s, early 90s, a committee was put together to design a standard language in this area, and that was where Haskell came from. So I should have checked the dates, but it's late 80s, early 90s, the first Haskell language report came out. And by the mid-90s, there was that standard language there. So Haskell has been pretty much stable. The core of Haskell has been the same for 20 years. The way it does I.O., the way monads are in there, those have all been there. And the first major stable standard of Haskell, I think one would call Haskell 98, which persisted for more than 10 years. So Haskell emerged as this vehicle. And the intention was that Haskell would be both a vehicle for research, so it would be a, a living laboratory, and would also be a language which could support production quality compilers, which is a bold and, you know, one might say in some senses, a contradictory pair of, of requirements. But it's actually, I think, Haskell, in the form of GHC, has been remarkably successful. And I think I put that down to down to a whole lot of people. But I think the main responsibility for keeping GHC going would go to Simon Peyton Jones, who's been a, you know, he's an inspiring, he's inspired generations of of people to work on GHC. His model of encouraging people to turn up, roll their sleeves up and engage with the compiler. So adding, positively encouraging people to add extensions, to try new ideas, that has worked remarkably well. So it's pulled in generations of people who are interested in functional programming, yet has been a compiler which has been robust enough and of a quality that can support the level of industrial use that there is today. I guess if one were to have regrets about what Haskell has turned out, it would have been nice if we'd been able to establish a small core, which might have been a bit more stable, for example, for teaching purposes, for building textbooks, for building a certain class of tools, that the language does, if you're interested in tool building, and perhaps this is something we'll come back to a bit later on, having a language that evolves rapidly and organically is a challenge for the tool builder. And I suppose the other regret is that there's never really been a real competitor for Haskell, or at least that's, that's publicly available. 
I think Standard Chartered have a very good Haskell compiler, but that's clearly a proprietary. It came out of earlier work by Leonard Augustin, but is now proprietary. So there have been other compilers and other compilers, particularly of the standard Haskell 98, but the de facto Haskell standard is what GHC implements. And there are advantages to a de facto standard like that, but the disadvantage is that it can evolve perhaps more rapidly and makes it easy to support other libraries, to support tools and so on. And so Haskell is this language that is started because it was almost designed by committee. A bunch of people got together and agreed that they wanted to share their work and be able to feed off each other and have a common baseline. And so there were all these different ideas. You talked about some of the laziness that Miranda had, the type theory, the basic compiler stuff. You have people like John Hughes, who eventually folded in the ideas of property testing. Where were you fitting in and what kind of stuff were you bringing to Haskell from the stuff that interested you and worked on it? Because I know you've written a couple of books on Haskell, just functional programming in general, and then you've had some type theory stuff. Where did you fall in with the Haskell crew? Before Haskell, I did some, I think the work I'm most proud of is, but it was around the time that Haskell was just emerging. I did some work on the way that Miranda did input-output was it viewed the input as a lazy list and the output was a lazy list that, that was produced by consuming the input, which is a nice model of how you produce output. So your terminal demands characters in the output to print on the screen, and that creates demands for bits of input from the terminal from the user. And it's a nice high-level model. It's a nightmare to program it because you're, the way you do pattern matching, for example, different flavors of pattern matching push more demand, are more or less strict. And so the way in which your partial bits of input and output interleave depend on the particular way you write pattern matching and so on. So that was really difficult to program in practice. It wasn't at all modular. And I produced a set of combinators, which I talked about. There was a year of programming when Edgar Dijkstra was at the University of Texas. He'd been there a couple of years. Tony Hoare went to visit for a year. And they all organized what was called a year of programming and had six one-week workshops through the year. And one of those was organized by David Turner on functional programming. And I was involved with that with some other Samson Abramsky, Richard Bird, are also involved. So it was the UK functional programmers, more or less, um, or a subset of them. And I talked about a set of combinators for putting together input and output. So you could program IO programs in a compositional way. And those were, if you want to look at them in the right way, they're a sort of precursor to monads. So I was pleased I'd done some work that it perhaps seeded things that later down the line turned into um, what were monads in Haskell. And that's become the standard way of writing I.O., for example. But it was nice, you know, I felt that that work went in. I did some other work on looking at ways that you could formalize Haskell logically. So how could you try and do reasoning about Haskell programs? And we had some funding for that, and I produced some work on a couple of papers, first on Miranda and then on Haskell, called Formulating Haskell, about ways of turning Haskell programs into logical formulas and then reasoning about those. We did some work in that area. I think a problem there was that the machine inference technology that was around wasn't terribly powerful. So the cost of doing the reasoning outweighed the benefit of getting the proofs. 
So that was unfortunate. Um, and laziness came in there. Laziness can make some aspects of reasoning easier, can make other aspects more complicated. So those are the two things I'd sort of point to as the things that I felt had the most impact, at least around that period. I guess there was a bit of a, you know, I talked about all the excitement there was through the 80s and new architectures, new languages, this link with logic. So this this three-way link between programming and logic and architecture and people seeing these, these linked advances in all three. I think that came to a bit of a halt through the 90s. I think it was a period more of consolidation than of real excitement. People had found they could get away with doing programming on standard machines, you know, sequential. The von Neumann architecture wasn't dead. In fact, it was thriving. You were getting an, an increase in, in speed of processes and so on every 18 months. And so it was very difficult for these novel architectures to compete, and they just faded out, really. So I think it entered a bit more of what you might think of as a consolidation phase. You know, there was all that excitement at the beginning. You could look at it as being as part of the hype curve. The 80s was the, the up bit of the hype curve. The 90s was perhaps the down bit and got down to the doldrums and then started going up again. So I think people were, there were people who were true believers, but I think it was seen as a niche activity. I think my colleagues, you know, I'd have colleagues here who would think, oh, those functional programmers, it's all very in, impractical and so on. Interestingly, on a completely separate development, Ericsson were looking, again in the late 80s, were looking at a language for programming telecom switches in their research lab in Stockholm. And they looked at various languages. They had a big, they sent people around the world. They invited people over to their lab to look for the right language to use for programming these things. And what they were doing there was they were looking for a language that would give them very high availability, little downtime, that would give them fault tolerance because they'd be running these things on on complicated, quite exotic hardware where hardware components could fail. So they were looking for it, and, and they might well be running in a distributed environment, and they would be running, potentially, this system they were dealing with was a concurrent system. You know, they'd have lots of calls coming into a switch or a telephone exchange at the same time. And they came up with the language Erlang, which is a concurrent language, but its basis is functional. So they don't have destructive assignments. It's a single assignment-based language. So they saw functional programming as a very good basis, as a substrate for defining this high-availability, concurrent, distributed language. So it was coming in there, and that was that got a lot of use within Ericsson and then emerged from there. It was originally a proprietary language, and then in the late 90s, that, that became open source. So when you get to the end of the 90s, there were a number of languages. There were the ML family, so there's Camel has grown in France. So that's a strongly typed language like Haskell, but is strict, unlike Haskell. Erlang is weakly typed, strict. So there's a, a collection of languages there, which each of which has its own language community. But I suppose they were all rather sidelined by the growth of OO. I mean, through the 90s, I think the 90s was a period when OO languages really exploded, starting with Smalltalk, but then there, that was eclipsed by what C++ and Java. So we get to the end of the 90s, and perhaps I pushed Java a bit further forward, but I think by the end of the 90s, we had the preeminent paradigm, what we were teaching our undergraduates, for example, was OO in Java. So 
you know, functional languages were seen as a, a sort of a little elegant sideline that people, you know, these rather weird sort of theoretically minded people were interested in. So I guess that's, you know, that's how I characterize the 90s. If you want to move on the next 10 years, I think that was a period when open source development, open source ideas strengthened both what was going on in Erlang and, and particularly what was going on in Haskell. So around them was developing an open source developer community, sharing code to some extent or another. And I think this is particularly where Haskell has been very strong, that there is this um, cabal system which allows you to load packages and this online hackage database that allows people to very easily to produce software, to upload it to a, a database and thereby to share it. Now, the quality of things on there isn't always uniform, but it gives people a chance to get into the community, to try things out, download things, modify them a bit, build their own project. So I think open source was something that particularly enhanced what was going on in the Haskell community. And to a lesser extent with Erlang, because Erlang, I think, has evolved slightly differently in that there's always been Ericsson have always employed a core group to support Erlang, and so programming of libraries and so on has happened through the efforts of that core group. Whereas for Haskell, if there has been support for the language, it's been partly through research projects. That was how GHC was produced. The UK government supported that through its Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. And latterly, of course, Simon Peyton-Jones and Simon Marlowe worked for Microsoft Research, so their time was paid for by Microsoft. So the support there was more indirect. There's never been – Haskell has never had a sugar daddy in the same way that, that Erlang had came out of Ericsson. And, of course, Java came out of Sun Microsystems, where there were people paid – quite a substantial budget was put aside for building libraries and tools and so on. But in the last five years or so, things have blossomed. Now we have Haskell has become cool. You can see Haskell has been taken up in the financial sector, particularly prominently in the UK. I just saw Barclays, one of the big banks, have just advertised 10 positions in for Haskell developers because they want to build a group. One of the people who's worked at another bank is setting up a group at Barclays is Neil Mitchell who came through the academic route, did a PhD at York, then worked in industry. So there are lots of jobs for Haskell programmers. In a similar way, Erlang has become, has a big developer community around it, around the world. I think something like WhatsApp being developed in Erlang has been a huge cheerleader for the language. The fact that if a relatively small group of engineers can support this global messaging phenomenon on a relatively parsimonious hardware setup because the language is entirely you know, completely the right language to use for that sort of back-end application. So you know, those sort of high concurrency, high throughput applications are attracting people to Erlang. And also Erlang's sibling, if you like, or no, perhaps not sibling, it's not a, it's not a child, it's maybe a nephew, Elixir, which is a language that runs on the Erlang virtual machine, the Beam, but uses a Ruby-like syntax. So it's a bit like Scala is to Java. You can exploit the VM, you can exploit all the Erlang libraries, but you get to write in a language that is a bit more, is more friendly to Ruby developers, at least in its concrete syntax. So you talk about the open sourcing and you mentioned Moore's Law and circling back around it. It sounds from just lore that 
there kind of was set up to be a perfect storm to get that hype cycle back where around the late 90s, this got open source so people could go check it out and just play with it if you were a language enthusiast instead of having to figure out how to license it or get a language. Yeah. So you could start doing this research. And then mid-2000s, Moore's Law is right at the edge of or you can start to see where the precipice is coming. You know that Moore's Laws is starting to end. Things are going as fast as they are as far as computer speed. It's still being sustained as far as cost of hardware. So that part of Moore's Law is still holding up. Yeah. But the single processor fact of we're not getting these speed gains, would you say based off your vision in history that that is kind of what was setting the stage for this hype cycle in the past five years? Or is there something missing from someone who was seeing the early hype cycle to the leveling off to the doldrums to it picking back up. Is there anything else that kind of attributes to it from the hype you've seen or what helps account for that? Okay. It is complicated because there's another little bit of futurology that went wrong. So perhaps it's five years ago, perhaps seven years ago, people were talking about chips with hundreds of cores on them because there was going to be this exponential growth in a number of cores per chip. And I think people saw that as happening. And that was one of the things that made people think, well, we can't program those using traditional languages. And this is a place where potentially, at least, something like Erlang or indeed Haskell could score. I think what's happened is that because people are so scared off trying to program Java on a 100-core machine, they've just not come into the mainstream in the same way. So it is very hard to predict. So, you know, that's perhaps an observation. I think also OO has has not proved to be the solution people thought it was. I think people have built large, unwieldy systems using OO. And I think people are now seeing that using a functional approach in some situations is just so much more effective. And it's been perhaps a niche thing, maybe in financial modeling to start with, But once people can see that it can be applied in a nice way in one domain, it can then spread out to applying in others. And it's interesting, it is fashion as well. You know, people get, it's now cool to be nerdy. It's cool to be working on these unusual languages. So it's cool to do that rather than cool to be right at the cutting edge of OO with patterns or whatever. I think there's always going to be people and perhaps some might say the brightest people get attracted to the, the things that are on the edge because they're the things that challenge them the most. And so it becomes a way that companies can recruit the best people. And so it becomes a positive feedback loop, I think. I think certainly that the fact that there are significant numbers of jobs in functional programming is now seen as a that's a major difference. I remember I had a friend who worked at Pfizer and interviewed a student who'd come through Kent. And so they said they'd learned Miranda or Haskell. I can't remember which. And this friend said, oh, great, you know some Miranda. And the student rather blanched because they'd never been asked about functional programming in a job interview before. This was about 15 years ago. Whereas now I think we have students who are very definitely coming in. I've had students come in through the door and say, I'm really keen to be learning functional programming. It's what I want to be doing when I leave because we're getting students coming in who've been exposed to that. They've done some computing at school, and this is one of the things that they've picked up. So I think the open source environment, as you say, allow, will pull people in from all sorts of different directions. And once you get a critical mass, then things start happening. Can I talk a bit, about, a bit more about research I've done in the last 10 years? Should we do that? We can do that. 
what I've been doing the last 10 years is looking at work on refactoring. So on transforming programs first with Haskell, then doing quite a bit of work with Erlang. And I'm pleased to say I've just started a project of doing something similar with OCaml. So I had a colleague here, Klaus Reinke, and he and I got really quite excited about doing refactoring for functional languages because it's something that people say is easier for functional languages. And I think often is because just doing it by hand, you've got a for languages like Haskell, at least, you've got the type system there to help you out. But it's also, I think, because you don't have computation by side effects, doing the sorts of analyses you need to do to guarantee that a refactoring is correct. It's a lot more tractable to do those analyses for a functional language than it is for a traditional imperative language. And so if you look at the state of the art of what refactoring means in practice, if you do refactoring for Java in Eclipse, for example, typically the state of the art is you do a refactoring that the tool supports, and then you have to do all your regression tests because maybe you've made some of your tests fail. You've got very little guarantee of your refactoring actually preserving the behavior of your program. So that's something I've been interested in. It's been a theme through the work I've done over the last 10 years or so. So we've done work, for example, using property-based testing, so random testing using QuickCheck. We've done work on testing refactoring tools where you randomly generate programs and you randomly apply refactorings to those programs. And then you test to see if they behave the same by evaluating them on random values. And you can get a heck of a long way with that sort of – It's the lesson is just like QuickCheck for Ordinary Haskell – this will find errors for you in a pretty straightforward way. It will expose some of the dark corners of what you're doing. But it's still a bit unsatisfactory. And what we're going to be doing with this project coming up with OCaml is to try and use serious heavyweight machine verification to verify refactorings. And we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at using things like SMT solvers like Z3, Z3, to automatically verify that the program we had before the refactoring and the program after have the same behavior. That's one of our goals. But another goal is more ambitious. This is with a colleague, Scott Owens, who's part of the Cake ML team. What is That's a, a version of ML which has a fully verified compiler. And so what we're going to be able to do with that, we hope, is actually take refactorings like renaming and prove that whatever program you apply that to, if you meet the side condition, then we can guarantee that your program will not change its behavior. So it's nice it's taking this thing I've been interested in for about the last 10 years, a number of aspects, I'll concentrate on this, it's taken this refactoring idea and has combined it with this interest in program verification. And now we've got Scott and his collaborators from the KML team have built this infrastructure. So what we're going to be able to do is hopefully build some fully trustworthy refactorings. And we're collaborating in this with Jane Street Capital, who are interested in us transferring this technology, giving them support for doing refactoring in OCaml, which will allow them, give them more assurance, part of their quality assurance process. They'll be able to understand that certain changes they have in their repository will be based on refactorings and that therefore they can check them in different ways or indeed have them signed off because the refactoring is fully formally verified. So that stream of work is coming right up to the present. In the middle of that, we did some work I did with a long-time collaborator, Hu King Lee, 
who worked with me for about 10 years. Now she works for EE, the mobile company supporting their Erlang deployment. We built a refactoring tool, Wrangler, for Erlang. And what we did there was we did a whole lot of work on the pragmatics of what refactoring is about. So we did some work on detecting clones within code and supporting refactorings to remove those clones. And we did some work, which I, again, thinking of the things I'm really proud of, one of the things we did was build a whole infrastructure to make it easier for ordinary programmers to write their own refactorings. And that consisted of two parts. We gave them an API that allows them to modify the syntax trees and so on in a high-level way, like conditions, side conditions. We call that API. That was good at writing new refactorings from scratch, so something that couldn't have been done before. But what we also built was a nice little domain-specific language, a DSL, for scripting refactoring, so building complex refactorings out of simpler ones. And those together, using off-the-shelf components, allowed us to build particular refactorings for particular customers who had particular needs. So that was a really nice, we were really pleased with that piece of work. And Wrangler gets used regularly in practice by people around the Erlang community. We're often doing quite mundane things like renaming a module, renaming a function, moving some functions around. But these are things, it's really difficult it's tedious to do and it's easy to get them wrong if you do them by hand using an editor or whatever and particularly for Erlang because its type system is rather more forgiving it's possible that you might produce code that looks as though it compiles okay but will then fail at runtime so having refactoring tool support for those simple refactorings seems to make a lot of sense so that's our approach has always been automate the simple things and then give users Simple refactorings they can script together and give them decision support tools like a clone detector to allow them to choose when and where to apply refactorings. So that, that sort of brings, it, brings me up to date with where my research is. And I guess I've hinted a bit here about the difference between Haskell and Erlang, or one of them. And it, it is interesting if you try and reflect on differences. There are a lot. In the actual base of the language, there are differences. So Haskell is lazy, and there's a, a literature that says, for some things, laziness is a real advantage. There are particular sorts of programs that work very well with laziness. Some sorts of logical reasoning work better with lazy programs. But there are some things that are really quite tricky. So I think one of the things with Haskell that's been perhaps a disadvantage of the language is that it's difficult to predict space behavior. So you can change a small aspect of a program and you might find that you go from using having linear space behavior to space behavior that's quadratic or indeed space behavior where you just have a constant overhead. So because it's hard to predict the order of evaluation, it can be difficult to predict the order in which space will be used. And people have built tools to try and support that, but it's still the intuition can be, particularly for a program of any size, it can be difficult to assess because, in a sense, it's not modular because the behavior of a function depends on the context in which it's being called. You can't say, well, this function always behaves like this, which you might do in a strict context. You've got to say, what context am I using this function in before you understand how it, how it behaves? And that makes things more complicated, particularly when you try putting a whole collection of functions together in, into a, a large system. So there, is, there are differences there. There are differences in the size of the language. So Erlang was built by a small team, and I think it's fair to say that nearly every feature it has 
is there for a reason. It's there because it provides a new bit of functionality. It provides a certain sort of facility. And so it's a small language. You don't, there's not very much syntax there. Whereas Haskell has got the opposite. It was designed by a committee, so the initial language might have different ways of doing the same thing. But also, I think because of its turn up and we'll include you philosophy, if it's an interesting feature, it can be included. It can mean that the language has grown and grown. So there are, particularly the type system has grown more and more complex. So, for example, now there are type level values, which translation means that there are types which behave like their values. So there is a type that behaves like zero and a type that behaves like successor of zero and so on. And so at the type level, you can have things that look like numbers. Now, that means effectively what you're doing is building a model or a a simulation of a dependently typed language where types can depend on values. You're building a model of a dependently typed language inside Haskell. And that's very cool, but it can be tricky to work with in practice. So, So Erlang is small and Haskell is a lot larger as a language. There are differences as well in the way that their releases are managed. So Erlang is still has a managed release program, typically every few months, and features go in. There is a there are feature requests which people can complete, and there are open source features now. Now Erlang has been open sourced; it's on GitHub. People can add features. But it's a rather more managed process than perhaps GHC, where it's, you know, GHC is more permissive, it's more inclusive, so more things go in, which, as I say, can, you can have the disadvantage that it can be harder to hit a moving target. Now, I guess I'd say it's not a criticism, it's simply an observation, but it's something that I've noticed, you know, one notes from trying to write tools which target the language, but also trying to write books which focus on the language. So I wrote a book on Haskell, which first edition came out in 1996, I think, and then a second in 99. It took me a bit longer to get the third edition out in 2011. But there are things now, it's still modified the way that the applicative type class now interacts with the monad type class means that the code in the book is strictly wrong. So if you want to use the book You need the code that's available on Hackage, which does incorporate some changes that have come in. But we're now five years on since that last edition, so it's up to me to produce another edition, I guess. But it can make features like that more difficult too, particularly when changes happen in the type or the class system. They're going to be perhaps more visible if they simply happen in a library. But I think where Haskell stole a march on Erlang was in Hackage and Cabal, which I talked about earlier on, of having this central place that people can upload and download software. So it means that you build a whole web of dependencies between different pieces of software. Now, that itself can be a challenge. How do you manage situations where one particular thing you're working on has a certain set of dependencies, something else has another set of dependencies which might involve conflicting versions of libraries? That seems to be solved now by a Docker sort of approach where you have different versions of your Haskell ecosystem supporting different applications. But that's been an area where its openness, I think, has brought people along. And I think also people are attracted to its, its austerity, you know, the fact that it's got this mathematical underpinning. It is mathematical, but then you know, all programming languages are mathematical. But it has the links with category theory that arguably inspired things like monads. That gives it a, 
a sort of coolness which Erlang, being a bit more sort of pragmatic and practically oriented, perhaps lacks that. So you can see why it's become a beacon language for strongly typed functional programming. I think it's the it's the go-to language. When people think about functional programming now, Haskell is the language they think of. And that's certainly not how it would have been 10 years ago. So you kind of touched on this with bringing in approachability of it, but because you're at University of Kent, you've talked about having students go through this stuff. How do they differ and how are they similar as far as people coming in and picking up some of these languages the first time? Are there any common stumbling blocks between the two? Is there anything that is trickier for one to get? I know there's the concept of what is an actor in Erlang that some people stumble upon, and then you might have some type stuff that people stumble upon in Haskell. But as you go through and you start introducing these to students, what are some of the stuff that you find is common or different in the way that you have to teach or the way that people stumble in get or don't get concepts in either languages and both? That's a really good question. And it's complicated. So I think Erlang is more approachable. I think it's there are fewer things to learn. There's less syntax. I think the syntax is on the whole, though a lot of people say it's ugly, the syntax on the whole is more familiar than the Haskell syntax. So in Erlang, when you apply a function, you put the name of the function and followed by parentheses, which contain the arguments separated by commas. When you come to the end of a function clause, there's a semicolon. When you come to the final function clause, there's a full stop. So there is punctuation that looks quite like the punctuation you might see in Java. That being said, there are some bits of the language which are not ideal. I think the notation for lists is horrible. It's a notation that was inherited from Prolog. And it's just not, because the cons operator is not a colon infix, it's a mix-fix operator, open square bracket, X, vertical bar, Y, close square bracket. That's the list with X as the first element and Y as the remainder. So it's X cons Y. A lot of students make the mistake that, oh, if you remove X, then you get the list open square bracket, Y, close square bracket, which, of course, you don't. What you get then is the singleton. It contains just the list Y. That's a stumbling block. So just that notation has the wrong connotation and students, you get elementary errors from that. That's compounded by the fact that the Erlang type system is weak. So it's possible to write types for Erlang functions, but there is a type checker for Erlang, which is not intrinsic to the language itself. That's all done at runtime. There is a checker called dialyzer. And what that does is implement what is called success typing. Now, what that means is you only get a type error when it's impossible to run the function at all. If it's possible to apply a function to an argument and get a result, maybe on just one value, you don't get an error. And that's so it's sort of the jewel of what you want. What you would like is a type error. If there's any possible way of applying the function, getting a type error at runtime. But success typing is, as I say, the jewel of the thing you might be wanting. It's a really useful tool. It allows experienced programmers to build big systems. It's a bit of a stumbling block for beginners. But I can point to those two stumbling blocks for Erlang because I think on the whole, it's more approachable. I think Haskell, the syntax can be tricky. The type system can be tricky. And because of the presence of type classes, the error messages can be egregiously misleading. 
So if you fail, if you pass too many arguments to a function or too few arguments to a function, you might get an error from the class system saying something like there's no declaration of an instance for a numeric class at a particular function type. Now, that means nothing to the student who's in their second week of learning Haskell. Well, it might mean something to a tiny proportion. So it's the complexity of the type system can bite quite early on. And I think the conclusion I come to is that Erlang does make life easier for it's a smaller step for the a program or certainly for a programmer who has come through learning Java. I think it's also what's quite nice is that we can teach in a single language. We can easily teach functional programming and message passing concurrency. On the whole, we don't find understanding processes, understanding actors in Erlang is a major stumbling block. It's nicely designed. I mean, you can criticize the design. All the processes are implicit. You only Process only comes into being dynamically when you spawn a process. There are no explicit channels. But I think the model of communication, the model of the way mailboxes work, is a really elegant piece of work. The bits fit together really very well. The way that communication is asynchronous, the way that it's possible to bring down a system in a managed way using what are called exit signals, the way that articulates with message passing. It's really very nice to explain. The core design of a language is very sound. Now, you can explain that as you teach. Now, of course, Haskell has a whole number of concurrency ex- extensions. In a sense, it's a sort of laboratory for describing all sorts of concurrency. So it's a nice place in which to show a whole lot of different things. But I think to show a language in which to program concurrently Erlang does that very well. So I think it's nice to be able to package those two into a single, because we always forget that there's a period when somebody first meets a a new language that all that they're looking at is the surface, and they're looking at the syntax. And what we want them to do is do enough in the language that they look through that surface to what the intention, the semantics is below that. So being able to combine a treatment of functional programming and concurrency in the same language has the advantage of only having that startup that getting used to the concrete syntax, seeing through it. It only has that once rather than once for the functional and once again for the concurrent. And what I was alluding at with the processes is more the designing what is a process. It wasn't that the process communication is the tricky part. It was finding those boundaries of setting up the concurrent activities. And then you also mentioned that the transition from people coming into Erlang or Haskell from Java was different because Erlang was that simpler step. Have you noticed a difference between people who don't necessarily have the Java background or, and are blank slates, tabular rosses that you get to teach functional programming to? Is there a difference in? That's a good question. I never won the political battle of exposing our students to functional programming first. I never managed to persuade my colleagues that we should do that. So we've always, I think for about 25 years, we've either taught them an imperative language as Java or Pascal, or for a period, Modular 3. We've taught either that first, or we've taught it in parallel with the functional. We've never, and I would have liked to have done that. And I think it's an interesting discussion because now a lot more people in the UK are doing computer science at school. So I think we're going to be going back to this question of how do we start everybody at the same point? And I think one of the arguments is, if you teach a functional language first, you are starting everybody at a point that they are all beginners. Now, some might have done a bit of hobby work, but more or less, they're all beginners. So I've never had any empirical 
insight into the difference between people who come tabula rasa and people who come with some prior experience. Have you noticed a difference between those who have taken the Pascal or Java or Modula 3 first and then taken the functional versus at the same time where they're learning both concepts kind of in lockstep? I think it's better to do one than the other. I think it's better to teach somebody one language well so that they master it and then teach a different approach next. That's my considered conclusion. Because I think otherwise you get so much crosstalk. Because then if you can assume that the student understands Pascal or Java or whatever, you can make explicit comparisons. You can leverage that knowledge and say, well, in comparison, Java will support this, but it doesn't support this sort of thing very well. So, for example, when you're talking about data types, it's a place where it just makes so much more sense to program with data types in a language which has explicit types. Doing variant types in Java is a nightmare, you know, doing all this abstract base class and so on. It's just the wrong approach. I mean, you can do it, but it's just not the right way of doing it. So it's nice to have that explicit comparison. It's interesting the point you made about people not understanding processes. I think there's a different group of beginning Erlang programmers who are the experienced developers. And I have taught people like that because I've done some as a result of a collaboration with Francesco Cesarini from Erlang Solutions. We had a project to put their e-learning materials online. And then we've more recently done some work at the University of Kent where we've built a MOOC in Erlang. And that will be going, we had a preliminary launch of that last year, and that will be going online with the Future Learn MOOC platform in the spring of 2017. But experience of working with people who are experienced programmers, stumbling blocks there can be recursion. People have perhaps been taught to be scared of recursion. So just understanding, and Erlang has no loop constructs. The way you achieve a loop in Erlang is by writing a recursive function. And typically what you do is write tail recursive functions, which are very like loops. But that's a stumbling block. And I think the other stumbling block for experienced programmers is that they know what a thread is. And a thread is so unlike a process in Erlang that they've got to unlearn the thread concept. I think in Erlang, if you come to that fresh, you just think the approach that says, if it could be a concurrent activity, make it a concurrent process. So having as lightweight processes as you could wish for, which exist for the time you want them and then disappear. A process can be created to handle a message. It handles that message. It's destroyed. If you have hundreds of messages coming in concurrently, you can have hundreds of processes processing those, and that's fine. You're not having to worry about a small number of threads which you have to allocate and deallocate. You don't have worker pools and so on. The model is let the concurrency in the program reflect the concurrency in its context in the real world. And the virtual machine, the scheduler, will deal with that. That's a really powerful – because, of course, for 20 years, Erlang was run on an entirely sequential process. So understanding concurrency as an architectural principle, as a design principle, not as an efficiency hack, if you like, is crucial. I think that's a relatively simple message. You throw away all the complication to do with worrying about threads and limited resources and particularly shared memory and think about these concurrent processes that are autonomous things 
don't worry about sharing. The only way you get interaction is to send messages between them. It's a very clear model. So I think there isn't an issue there, but there's a caveat for this whole discussion that it is deeply unscientific. It would be lovely to do some work with psychologists or whoever to try and formally substantiate these sorts of claims. The trouble is it's very difficult. You don't step in the same river twice. You can't unlearn something once you've learned it. How do you set up experiments and so on that would allow you to conclude in a scientific way that you learn processes better if you've not learned threads beforehand? I don't know. But it's an interesting question. I'd be interested to know if people have tried hard to do that. I'm not aware of any work in that area. So we're getting in on time on this episode, and we've been going for a while. Is there anything we haven't covered or things that have come up in the conversation that you want to make mention to before we start to wind this call down and a starting point for people to go research in more so they've at least heard about it? We talked about most things. I suggest to people there are, there are lots of places out there, there are interesting conferences. One sign of the fact that this whole area, I suppose it's the paradigm of OO has broken. There are these conferences like OSCON, and there's a conference in London called CodeMesh, where there's quite a substantial presence of different programming approaches. So it's quite liberating, really, to think that it's not everybody has to write OO code. There are different approaches. And maybe we're going to move to a model where different languages will be used in different contexts where they work best. That's a very woolly conclusion, I realize, but that's a, a good starting point. There are conferences, there are lots of places on the web. There are so many resources now. And I suppose that's, I suppose perhaps the web is another. I've talked about the presence of something like Hackage as being an engine to get people in Haskell. I guess another thing that has happened is that there's a whole lot of other resources. So the view of the world that says everything doesn't have to be top down. We don't have to wait for people to write books. We can develop our own blogs, we can develop our own tutorials, we can develop, you know, put videos on YouTube and so on. And I think that sort of bottom-up development of materials has been something that's, again, that's happened in the last 10 years. And I think that's been particularly strong for the functional programming community, that's the how-tos and so on. And people just talking through exciting ideas that they've had has been a way of bringing people into the community. It's always striking how much people are prepared to develop things, put a lot of effort into building things, put them out there in the community. The web is a wonderful thing where, you know, people perhaps concentrate on the bad parts of it, but I think there are great things going on there. And that can particularly, it can be a very inclusive place. So I think that's good. And is there anything else that you want to plug? Any upcoming appearances at conferences or elsewhere? Any other projects? We touched on the Erlang MOOC that testbed that you did that's out there on Kent. You talked about the MOOC that's coming. You mentioned your upcoming work with Jane Street with OCaml and getting some refactoring coming. Wrangler, you talked about a couple of your books. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that people know about that you're involved with or just other recommendations in general for the audience? I was very honored to be asked to do there's a, a, an annual talk in honor of Peter Landon, who is a computing pioneer in the UK. And there's a talk every year the Peter Landed Semantics Seminar, and I've been asked to do that this year. So I'm giving that presentation in London on the 12th of December, and I'm talking more there about building trustworthy refactoring tools. So that's my next sort of upcoming presentation and thinking about that. So that will bring in some of the things we've talked about today. 
And then, as I said earlier on, we're expecting to go live with the Erlang MOOC, which is split in two halves. It's first, it's three weeks on functional programming in Erlang and then three weeks on concurrent programming in Erlang with a little gap in the middle. So you've got a two mini MOOCs that together put together will be an introduction to becoming an Erlang programmer. And I'd encourage people to get involved with that if they're beginners to the area. But that's about it. Okay, and I'll make sure to get some links in the show notes and try and go back and update them if you're listening to this after the MOOC has come out at some point in 2017 or beyond and find those links and I'll help announce them on Twitter as soon as I see them as well. So I'll keep updating as some of that stuff comes available. Brilliant. And then do you have any call to action for the audience? They've just listened to you give a good rundown of some of the history of Haskell and functional programming since the late 80s. Is there anything you want people to know about and take away as a call to action from this episode? Give it a try. If you've not tried it, take a look. If you've not tried Erlang, if you're a Haskell programmer, have a look at Erlang. If you're an Erlang programmer, have a look at Elixir. Different languages have different things to offer. And I'm learning I'm learning about OCaml now. I've talked with a colleague, Scott Owens. We've been teaching a compilers course on using OCaml. But all these languages have different things that can commend themselves to each other. And, you know, different languages can be good in different contexts. There isn't always a best language. Well, that sounds like a great call to action for the listeners. So then where can people find you and track down your progress and keep updated with stuff? It is just the University of Kent site? All my web presence is at the University of Kent. I have a blog on Blogger, which is Prof SJT. Uh, but you can find a link on my webpage. I'm on Twitter, it's, which is at Thompson underscore Psy. Those will get you to the places where I do the most technical stuff. So I'm on Twitter, Thompson Psy with an underscore in the middle. Prof SJT blog, though I have to say a call for action to me is to put a bit more on my blog. It's gone a bit quiet recently. And I have a webpage, which if you just look up University of Kent, Simon Thompson, you'll find me. And I'll get all those added to the show notes as well. So if anybody wants to come back, they can check the show notes page for the post and get there as well. Brilliant. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Professor Thompson, for taking your time and joining me today. It was great to get a rundown of the history and some of your work. And I am sure that based off everything you've done, we could get you back on in the future, especially if the audience clamors for you sooner than later to get you on and expound more about some of the work you've done and your upcoming work with getting the refactoring stuff going in OCaml and getting some more stuff and lessons learned from there of how have you found OCaml being strict versus lazy and some of the ML families versus the different aspects of OO and OCaml versus the OO slant of Erlang and some of the other learnings that you do as you continue refactoring. So at your call or the audience's call, I'll reach out to you and we'll try and get you scheduled on for some future learnings too. But in the meantime, thanks for taking your time and talking with me today. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. It was really interesting. And thanks for the invitation. Pleasure talking to you as well. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.